whether we compete with wine or spirits or beer or all of the above, it really depends on first our ability to educate the consumer, to give them the permission to feel like they can have it elsewhere, right? When they're sitting down at a, at a seafood restaurant and they're trying to decide whether they want to have a margarita or a glass of white wine or a glass of sake, that's the moment that we want to create. Welcome to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Claire Mitchell, a food and beverage attorney and a member of Stoll Reeves Agribusiness, Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Joining me today is Jess Thomas, co-founder of So Good Sake, a super premium American-made sake company that uses rice grown in California in its small batch brewing process. In this episode, Jess and I will discuss the intersection between alcohol and agriculture, some of the challenges with starting an alcohol business, and the opportunities he sees for sake in the U.S. market. Jess, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I was researching sake a bit in preparation for our podcast today. And I saw that sake or a sake-like fermented rice drink is one of the oldest known alcoholic beverages in the world, dating back to the 8th century. So despite having Mm -hmm. a centuries-old history, sake production here in the U.S. is still somewhat in its infancy. What got you interested in this beverage and launching a brand of your own? Yeah, you know, and that's that's sort of the great uh, irony of the category is that uh, in Japan, where you know from where sake originates, they've been brewing and brewing at a very high level sake for for centuries. I mean, well predating the origins of the United States, certainly, uh, let alone alcohol here and bourbon and everything else that we do really well in the states. So, um, I think in terms of the inspiration, you know, first of all, I, I have three co-founders on this project: Ken, Merrill, and Phil, and and we'll talk more specifically about Ken and his role with the rice probably later. But, you know, we all, I think, first and foremost, come at sake from the perspective of consumers who love the product and who have all had very unique experiences trying sake and learning about it and then ultimately trying really beautiful sake and and having that kind of aha moment where you realize that, you know, this is a product that has been pretty fundamentally mismarketed and and is probably widely misunderstood or or underappreciated in the States. You know, it presents a really interesting challenge, right? Because you have this product that is, you know, again, when it's produced well and when you have a the best version of it, I mean, it's unlike any other, you know, wine, beer, spirit that's out there. And it has a lot of really in- interesting, unique, unique properties, but it is inherently, you know, you, you have to do a lot of heavy lifting from a marketing and brand building perspective to to show that to consumers who think of it as, you know, it's warm and it's you know, it gives you hangovers and, you know, you do sake bombs or whatever. So there are a lot of misconceptions about sake that I think, uh, again, from an entrepreneurial perspective, present really fun challenges to try to solve. Uh, and, and so that's what brought us all together, I think, was the love of the product and the recognition that there's a really interesting um, challenge here and interest, an interesting business to potentially build. So you mentioned creating the best version of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how super premium sake like so good gets made? Um, you know, my understanding is that the production process is probably most similar to brewing beer, but could you describe for us how you get from rice in the field to sake in the bottle? 
Yeah. So, and that's a great question, Claire. So as you point out, yeah, the, the brewing process for sake um, is most similar to beer. It does have some, some very unique technical steps to it that beer does not have. But, you know, really the analogy from a, from a ingredients perspective that we use is, you know, rice is to sake as grapes are to wine. And, you know, rice and the specific type of rice or variety, or, or in some cases, kind of the terroir, where it comes from, that's what derives, that's what drives a lot of the, uh, and most of the flavor or the body or the other characteristics that, again, you would associate with wine. Where they differentiate is the technical grade of quality of sake doesn't come necessarily from different types of rice. It comes from uh, what we call the polishing rate of that rice. And so what you do when you start to brew sake, the very first step is you take a kernel of rice, you know, multiplied by a million, and you mill or you polish that kernel of rice down to a specific percentage, right? And so you can take it to 70 or 60 or 50 uh, or, or even, you know, 40 or 30 or 20. But the lower, you know, the more of that rice kernel you mill off, the smaller of the kernel you have left. And then the small, you know, dead center of that kernel is where all the starch lives, right? And it's the starch that you need to create that uh, fermentation into sugar and then secondary fermentation into alcohol. And so the higher concentration of starch you have left uh, will relate to a higher technical quality of sake. So as a friend, as, a, as an example, we at So Good, we focus on super premium technical quality grades called Junmai Daiginjo. And what that means is uh, across the entire, you know, all of the rice that we use to ferment and, and brew our sake, uh, that rice has at most 50% of its weight remaining. And what we use to ferment is that very, again, starchy center, um, which produces really well-balanced, really delicate, really fine, super premium varieties of sake. You drew the analogy to, you know, terroir with respect to wine grapes, I'm curious if there, you know, was a specific reason to choose California as the source of the rice mm -hmm. for your sake. Yeah, no, I mean, there was a very specific reason. And, and, you know, I'll say, as I said up front, you know, our motivations for building this brand were all very independent and different and all very entrepreneurially related. But the, the core of the story and the soul of the company has to do with the rice that we use. My one of my co-founder, one of the co-founders, my partner Ken uh, and his family have been growing rice in California for generations. Um, they were among the first people, Californians, to grow rice in California. And you know, the byproduct, one of the channels for that rice is one of the avenues I, sh I should say that you can uh, sell it to our sake brewers. And you know, for for some number of years, Ken and his family have been selling, growing, and selling sake rice to brewers. And so, you know, when we first kind of started tinkering with the idea of developing a sake brand, you know, one of the first things we said was, okay, how can we do this in a way that, you know, is authentic and, and you know, from a quality perspective would match what the, you know, what comes out of Japan. And, you know, this was well before any of my formal education around sake. And we did a little bit of research and we found that, you know, again, the rice actually drives, you know, a lot of the flavor within sake uh, and a lot of the, the, just all of the characteristics that you value when it comes to wine. And so Ken and his family, probably about six or seven years ago now, started growing a very specific variety of rice called Yamada Nishiki. And Yamada Nishiki uh, was developed in Japan and it has one use and one use only. And it is to brew 
beautiful, high quality sake. It is, they call it the godfather of sake rice. You can't eat it. You can't cook with it. You can't make mochi with it. You, you, the only thing that you can do with it that it has a, a, an intended purpose for is to brew sake. And so Ken and his family, again, started growing that in preparation you know, for the potential of, of what ended up becoming so good sake. And so you know, that is, above all else, um, what differentiates us and what makes the brand unique. And I think what makes our store unique is, is you know, we are, as we say, seed to sake. And so, uh, you know, you ask about why California rice and that, that, that's the reason, you know, we, we are, um, very proud of the fact that this is, this is sort of our version of Napa Valley wine, you know, compared to French wine. Um, and, uh, we think that, that, uh, we've managed to hopefully create something that at the very least pays homage to the beautiful sake that comes from Japan. And, and we're just trying to do our version of it here. So California wine grapes have been somewhat threatened in recent years by climate change due to rising temperatures, uh, smoke taint from wildfires. Is that same impact being felt by rice growers that produce the rice that's destined for a bottle of so good sake? Not exactly. I mean, I think any ag producer in California would tell you today that uh, it, it's the most challenging time, you know, in their lifetimes or their careers. I think for every industry within ag, uh, it, there are different reasons for that. For rice, it's it's all about the drought. You know, are there impacts from the other things that you mentioned? Absolutely. But ultimately, the ability to produce rice in California comes down to the availability of water to grow it. And so, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, the threat that thousands of family rice farmers are under, it, it has to do with the fact that we are, you know, in an unprecedented drought. And, and that impacts everything, including certainly, uh, yeah, our, our sake rice. Yeah. It's really such an interesting product. You know, we've talked about its similarities in terms of production to beer. Um, I know it's sometimes called rice wine. You know, your product packaging, which is which is beautiful, makes it look like a very high-end distilled spirit. Shifting gears a little bit, I, I and talking specifically about the ac- alcohol industry, I'm curious to hear from you, you know, what you consider your main competitor to be in the market here in the U.S., it's it's a question that I wrestle with every day. Uh, I think the short answer is the the competition for sake right now is sake, and it is the fact that there is you know very very widespread misunderstanding or a lack of understanding or an unfamiliarity or, or you know all of the above with sake, and the results of that unfortunately for the industry is that it has really one you know, we have one home right now and it's within Japanese restaurants. And, you know, it's beautiful that we have the ability to to sell, you know, uh, we have a built-in audience. We have everybody that I talk to, I've talked to people all week long, all month long, every day who say, oh, I love sake. I have it when I go to eat sushi. And the reason that that we can't convince someone to, or we haven't yet convinced someone to have sake when they go to tacos or when they go to oysters or when they go uh, to a steakhouse is that very, very few people have developed enough of a, an understanding and an appreciation for sake to give themselves permission to open those new occasions up. And so today, whether we compete with wine or spirits or beer or all of the above, you know, really depends on first our ability and our, and our, you know, to, to educate the consumer, to give them the permission to feel like they can have it elsewhere, right? When they're sitting down at a, at a seafood restaurant and they're trying to decide whether they want to have a margarita or a glass of white wine or a glass of sake. That's the moment that we want to create, right? We want to we want to 
set ourselves up to be competing against wine or spirits or beer. Today, you know, the category is competing against itself. And, you know, when you go into a sushi restaurant, uh, you compete against, you know, we, we on, on the menu compete against the other eight or nine brands that are there. And that's the big challenge for the industry is, uh, is to break it out of that single use occasion and give people, again, the permission to, to enjoy it anywhere they enjoy a white wine or a light spirit. So if I'm not mistaken, I believe you have experience launching other brands aside from So Good Sake previously. Can you walk us through your process of taking a concept to market? You know, what are some of the key steps from your perspective to ensuring long-term success of a business, be it sake or something else? That's a great question. So this is my sort of second uh, you know, foray into food and beverage entrepreneurship. And the first brand that I launched uh, was a brand called True Jerky, which um, we're very, very proud of. And we ran for uh, a number of years and then ended up selling to a partner, a manufacturing partner. And, you know, I think to me, when it comes to specifically food and beverage, and again, I can't speak for other categories, you know, different entrepreneurs, there's, there are millions of success stories and, and podcasts dedicated to them that can give you probably better answers than mine. But for me, you know, when you're talking about food and beverage, you know, first and foremost, obviously the product and the care that goes into the product makes all the difference in the world. I always say sort of product is always table stakes for food and beverage brand. If, if your product isn't going to be in the top 10% objectively, right? And when we all love our, our products, as, as, as I'm sure people do their kids, but if you're not, if you can't objectively consider yourself in the top 10% of your category from a quality perspective or uniqueness, differentiation, whatever, uh, however you want to define that, then you're going to have a really tough time. And so that part of it is table stakes. I think increasingly as the barriers to entry for new brands and products has gotten lower and lower and lower. I mean, it takes a few thousand bucks and a few hours on Shopify to put, to put a, you know, to launch a new brand today. As those barriers to entry get lower then the, table stakes to build a successful business get higher, right? So now, not only do you have to have a good product, you also have to have a good brand, right? Well-packaged, well-designed for the channels and the category that you play in. Your supply chain and your margins are table stakes. Um, and, and to some degree, even you know your co-founders, your relationship with your people, that all is table stakes. To me today, as I look at the landscape, and the, and the ecosystem of brands, both successful and unsuccessful. The secret sauce is all in marketing execution. It's brands that can figure out how to acquire customers and keep them and keep them profitably. Eight or 10 years ago, when we first started True Jerky, that was right in the era of food companies being treated like tech companies. Grow, 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 grow at the expense of everything else and then get to you know, 20 million bucks in revenue, even if you're losing you know, 16 and, you know, one of the big CPG players will come snap you up because they don't want to do innovation in-house. That seems to have shifted. Um, and the successful brands today seem to have figured out how to very strategically acquire customers, you know, using all the things that I mentioned, sales, marketing, et cetera. But it's marketing execution that does that. Um, and so today, the longevity of brands to me, um, including our own, including what we do at So Good, has to do with marketing execution. So unlike probably many other products within food and the food and beverage category, alcohol is very highly regulated, both federally and at the state level. I'm interested to hear what some of the challenges have been for you and, and your partners, given this sort of the unique nature of alcohol regulation in the U.S. 
Well, yeah. Uh, compliance, anyone who works in al- beverage alcohol will tell you that will almost roll their eyes at compliance because it's just such a given that it's kind of a nightmare. You know, and the challenge with compliance in the States is that everything relates back to prohibition. All the laws that we have relating to alcohol stem from the repeal of prohibition. And so because of the system that we have, every state has its own, you know, there are federal laws relating to compliance with which you obviously have to comply and then state laws. And so any state that you want to sell into, you need to be compliant with those states laws. And so there are several layers of of things that are challenging to think about and be conscious of and report on. And then even within that, sake specifically, because it's so new and it's so small, it is particularly challenging because in some areas it's regulated as a beer, which is its own set of taxes and reporting obligations and everything else. Uh, and then in, in some areas, in some ways it's regulated as a wine. And so depending on where you go and who you're talking to and what you're trying to get done, you may be taxed or regulated as a beer or a wine. And so th- the biggest challenge for me is just, key, especially coming from the food side where you know the regulation is comparatively very small, even though what I used to think our regulations were tough. The challenge is just keeping in mind at all times, okay, is am I is what I'm doing 100% compliant or do I, you know, do, do I need to call Claire at Stoll Reeves and make sure that we're <laughs> we're staying inside the lines. So, if you could offer one piece of advice to someone that may be interested in getting into the alcohol industry for the first time, what would that be and why? I would say be very patient. I think that one of the things that I've learned throughout this process and seen, you know, just kind of watched um, as I've observed the industry is the brands. It's a little bit of the tortoise and the hare, right? The, the brands that seem to do well are the ones that are focused and patient and build sort of brick by brick. And the brands that tend to flame out are the ones that are chasing. I mean, you you know, everyone I think has has seen what's happened in the space with brands like Casamigos. And it's easy to think, well, of course, that's going to be us. And in some cases, you know, it obviously will be. There are, Casamigos is not the only billion dollar brand that's been acquired in the last five or 10 years. But brands like those are very, very uniquely exceptions and not rules. And so, you know, my advice, again, having been through a little bit of that, certainly, I mean, it's easy to do that when you're building an alcohol brand is you really get ahead of yourself. But the, the way to do it is to be patient build it strategically, be smart about it. Um, and, you know, there are a million ways to spend a lot of money in alcohol. Uh, I will say that. And the key is, I, I, as much as anything else, just learning what to say no to. You were in the process of launching So Good Sake in the midst of a global pandemic in late 2020 and 2021. Oh, yeah. What was that like? And how did that factor into your business plan? <laughs> <laughs> well, as as Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think we probably, from a timing perspective, launched our brand at, at you know, the, specifically the worst moment to do so since Prohibition, I would guess. We, we started brewing our first batch of sake, which is, you know, a process that once you start it, you can't stop. Um, and it takes a few months. And we started brewing it right as, it, right as things were bubbling up with COVID. And it was... Really unclear what was going to happen. There was the crazy night with you know the NBA shutting down and Tom Hanks got COVID and or coronavirus as we called it at that point. And uh, so we had a decision to make. We said, do we do we you know do we let this play out or do we move ahead? And we said, you know, we've been working on this for a couple of years. Let's move ahead. Now, obviously, 
uh, things shook out the way they did. Uh, everything closed, bars, restaurants, hotels, you know, the world. And, you know, our whole launch plan was out the window because our original launch strategy was, you know, big cities, bars, restaurants, hotels, clubs. And all of a sudden, all those those venues shut down. Um, the distributors that service them, you know, largely shut down or at least weren't taking new products. And so we really spent, you know, it was a good lesson in humility because we spent, you know, the the big chunk of 2020 and then a lot of 2021 really just trying to get our feet back under us, you know, get our distributors in place and then and then kind of deal with the constant sort of opening, closing. Um, and then, you know, with with regard to the service industry specifically, there was lots of staffing issues, turnover. You know, that was a challenge even after we got through, you know, most of the um, reopenings. So it, it was it was a huge challenge and remains so, you know, I mean, um, you know, you 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 have one launch, you get one launch as a brand. And uh, if you don't do it right, you uh, and in our case, it was out of our control. But, you know, then you got to scramble and you got to pick the pieces back up and and, you know, just keep moving forward. So and the answer to your question is we had to scrap the everything that we had planned on doing and and figure out how to go a different direction. And, you know, we made it work and it was a really good learning lesson for all of us but not a fun experience going through it. I'll tell you that. I, I can't even imagine. We, so we've talked a lot about some challenges you've experienced, both with COVID and just in the alcohol industry generally. Before we wrap up today, let's talk a bit about opportunities. Sake seems to be seeing really strong growth in the US, particularly over the last few decades. Where do you see the domestic sake industry in, say, the next five to 10 years? And specifically, what's next on the horizon for So Good Sake? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I have, there's sort of two different answers to that question. Um, and I'll answer the first part of it about the domestic market. The domestic market for sake, I, I think at some point in the next five to 10 years, it will have its moment in the sun and it'll take some brand leadership and it'll take just, a, it'll have a tipping point moment where there's enough of a groundswell of consumers where, you know, it will it will have its moment like Rosé did three years ago or, you know, Fireball for, for people that remember <laughs> that. I mean, it'll have its moment, you know, and it'll be uh, it'll be really fun when it does. Uh, and we hope to be a part of the, the uh, set of brands that influences that. But that's just how things happen in alcohol. Right. You have uh, trends that take I mean, th- think about White Claw and, you know, the seltzer craze is kind of dying on the vine right now compared to what it was what the outlook was two or three years ago. Um, but, you know, that was really one brand and some good luck and some help from college kids. Um, so at some point in the next, I think the next decade, sake will have its moment. And, and we really hope to be a part of that and help be the ones pushing that and driving that trend. Because we do think sake has a permanent place, you know, on the bar shelf uh, or the wine cabinet for for any American consumer that that is that likes the characteristics of sake, which is pairs well with food, really delicate, really subtle, really well-balanced, and has a variety of use cases, whether that's a low-alcohol cocktail or, you know, paired with a, you know, a meal. And so we're really optimistic and bullish about the U.S. market. In the short term, um, we're actually focusing a lot of our efforts on export. We, uh, we, we have a base of business in London, and London is a market that understands sake perhaps a little bit better than, than markets that we operate in in the States. And so, you know, our focus right now is we're actually going to build a pretty strong test case for, you know, big city sake adoption outside of 
Japanese restaurants in London. And so we're focusing right now on on um, a bit of export there and a bit of export to uh, some other markets, uh, Europe and the Middle East, namely. And so, you know, in the short term, again, we certainly aren't abandoning the States, um, but we're going to, it's going to take some time to build the groundswell that it needs here. And so, you know, we're going to kind of build a footprint abroad and then circle back and really make a big push, you know, in a year or two here. Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm really excited to see what the future holds for So Good Sake. This was great. And I'm looking forward to keeping a bottle of it regularly stocked on my home bar. So thank you. The one consumer at a time. That's, that's my job. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, all the millions of listeners home. And, and thank you so much for having me. We're, we're, we're really excited to be here and always happy to talk about the brand and, and sake in general. So thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. That's S-T-O-E-L.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and may not reflect the views of Stoll Reeves LLP. Participation in this podcast by any individual is not an endorsement of any view or opinion expressed. This is not legal advice and the podcast doesn't create an attorney-client relationship.